One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. This is Owen Bennett-Jones with NewsHour Extra, first broadcast on Friday the 26th of June at 8 GMT. Now, each time the world says the crunch point in the tortuous negotiations between Greece and the Eurozone comes, it turns out it hasn't. The politicians, the bankers, the EU officials, the international officials respond with yet another short-term deal that leaves much unresolved. Greece clearly wants to stay in the euro, but there's always the question in the background, might there come a point when the Greek leadership decides, actually, it's better to leave the euro and to default? And what's the role of the IMF in all of this? Well, other countries have uh, defaulted, most notably Argentina in 2001, and really this programme is going to concentrate on what lessons Greece can learn from the experience of Argentina. And we're going to begin with two men who were intimately involved in the events of 2001. The debts were mounting up in Argentina. The currency was tied to the dollar. The peso was tied to the dollar, rather as the Greek currency is tied to, or in fact part of, the euro. The international financial institutions were calling for austerity, which Argentina was trying to impose. But there are limits to what is politically possible. It all sounds very familiar, but what are the differences? In the midst of all this, John Thornton, at the time, he led the technical team for the IMF in Argentina, and he was involved in negotiations, as was Domingo Cavallo, the Argentinian Minister of the Economy, and he was credited as the man who had saved Argentina from hyperinflation 10 years previously, brought it down from a massive 1,300% to 20%, something like that, and uh, he was in the ministry, trying to save Argentina from a default. They are both with us today. So, John Thornton, why don't you just cast your mind back to 2001. You were with the IMF and you got there in, I think, mid-2001. What were you thinking about the state of the economy in Argentina? I felt that uh, by the time I joined the team, despite the efforts of my predecessors in the IMF and despite the efforts of Dr Cavallo and his predecessors, the country seemed to be not clearly on the road to default, but certainly sufficiently on the road that it was going to take major efforts on the policy front and on the financing front to prevent defaults occurring. And the political feasibility of those efforts in the middle of 2001, when I joined the team, didn't look very promising, to well, be honest. But what were the key metrics that you looked at to make you think this is going to end up in a default, probably? The long-standing problem, despite several developments that glossed over it, is fiscal indiscipline in Argentina. And certainly I accept that Dr Cavallo made a major contribution to the stability of the country by introducing the currency board. That was a wonderful stabilisation device, but it did mask, I think, a series of problems that started emerging from the early 1990s, in particular with respect to fiscal policy. And by the time that I'd got there, fiscal position was deteriorating. The economy was in a deepening recession 
this country had not totally lost access to credit markets, but access to credit markets were slipping away and those markets were only being accessed at prices that would only add to the unsustainability of debt. And before we turn to Dr Cavallo, when you saw the situation which you've described as you saw it at the point you got to it, pretty dire, what policies did you think might actually help save it? Policies that actually I think would have been extremely difficult to implement at the time. If debt is on clearly non-sustainable path, you need a debt restructuring. Getting a voluntary debt restructuring of a sufficient size to put debt on a sustainable path is extremely difficult to do without having a credible threat of default. But if you have a credible threat of default, you start scaring other players in the economy, particularly depositors. So what was needed was a tough fiscal policy on the side of the Argentines and the creditors to write down debt. That was what was needed, but those are two very difficult things to put into play. Well, let's bring in Dr Domingo Cavallo now. You were the Minister of the Economy at that time, appalling job, faced with this desperate situation. And, you know, you did have a fantastic reputation as the man who could sort out the Argentinian economy. You had saved the economy once before from that hyperinflation. And uh, we're hearing from John Thornton that it looked desperate, as he saw it. How did you see it at that point? Yes, the situation was uh, extremely difficult. But there are two things I want to make it clear. First of all, the key to the stabilization was not the currency board. It was the dollarization. Just to jump in, basically you're saying you were famous for pegging the peso to the dollar. But you're saying, in addition to that, people were using a lot of dollars. Yes, that was the key for the stabilization, to allow the use of the dollar legally. Of course, everybody had been using the dollar illegally at the time of the hyperinflation. We said, okay, if you want to use the dollar, continue using the dollar, it's legal. So we became a sort of two-currency country. But uh, for every purpose, and this is the only similarity I see with Greece, we were in the dollar area of the economy. So for all practical purposes, the dollar was our currency in the same way as the euro is the currency of Greece since Greece entered the eurozone. So that is one thing. As far as the Argentinian economy at that time, first of all, the total debt of Argentina was less than 50% of GDP. While uh, Greece has a debt which is almost 200% of GDP, Argentina at that time had less than 50% of GDP. Well, no? let, let me just understand that, because I've read that, and it's a very striking figure. The Argentinian debt didn't seem that great. I mean, certainly compared to this Greek debt, compared to the size of the economy, it wasn't that big. So why was there such a big problem, Minister? Because in November 2000, and again in March 2001, and again in July, August 2001, Argentinians started to withdraw their deposits from the banks. And they were dollar deposits mainly because they saw a financial crisis coming because we didn't have a European Central Bank providing liquidity like it has been providing liquidity to Greece. To some extent, the IMF played that role. It gave us some support, December 2000, uh, January 2001, the so-called Armour program. It was uh, $13 billion that would be disbursed quarterly, conditioned on some fiscal targets. And then again, as Argentina had not complied with the targets in the first quarter of 2001, I renegotiated that uh, without changing the fiscal commitments. Uh, We got uh, subsequent disbursement. 
that way we stopped a significant withdrawal of deposits from the uh, banks. Well, let me just break in the there. Let me just yes. break in there and bring in John Thornton. I think what we're hearing is you were helpful, but not quite helpful enough. I think you have to put things in context. Debt to GDP ratio might look low, but you have to look at Argentine history in terms of its record of fiscal discipline, in terms of its ability to raise tax revenues. A lot of that debt was in foreign currency. So you have to ask yourself, will it be able to service that debt at a particular exchange rate? That's on the 50%. On whether the fund was helpful or not, it's a difficult role. I mean, these countries are members of the International Monetary Fund. You're there to support their economic policies to the extent that you think that those policies are sustainable. And uh, not supporting those policies after having been involved with them for some period of time is a very big decision to take. I think we were helpful within the the confines of our role. We're getting to a consensus on quite helpful. We're going to bring in a couple of experts who will help us understand all this. And just before we do, though, Dr Cavallo, I want to just introduce some recording we found, because eventually you had to resign. So we're going to ask you to relive history here a bit. This is the BBC report at that time, just to let you hear it. I'm outside Government House in the Plaza de Mayo in the centre of Buenos Aires. This is where, earlier in the night, there were running battles with the police firing tear gas and rubber bullets. Several hundred protesters are still here, banging their drums and waving Argentine flags. Some of the trees were burnt, as was part of the economy ministry a few blocks away. I can still smell the smoke. There are heavily armed riot police, some of them mounted around the square. After a night of running battles which saw Domingo Cavallo, the man running Argentina's economy for most of the last year, resign, Argentines will be asking what comes next. So, Dr Cavallo, that really does help bring home to us, because we've had this sort of quite technical discussion but there's so much at stake. No, no, but uh, stake, wait, wait. Yeah. If this is a technical discussion, I must correct things which are not right. You know, the IMF and also President Clinton had invited Menem in 98, and Argentina was shown as the poster child of the reforms during the 90s. And actually, the economy grew. We were completely stable. Of course, we accumulated some problems because of the lack of fiscal discipline of the provinces. But the reason why we entered into a recession was a terrible negative shock that came from abroad. At that time, the strength of the dollar had generated the depreciation of the euro, and Europe was an important market for Argentina. Secondly, Brazil had devalued significantly the real, and of course, Argentina suffered a terrible deterioration in terms of trade. In spite of that, Argentina was still with a balanced trade account. Export had continued going up because of the increase in productivity in Argentina. So it was a must, in my opinion, from the IMF to support Argentina at that time. And actually, in August, they approved an extension of the loan that we had received in the previous year by $8 billion. The IMF was supposed to allocate $3 billion to support an orderly debt restructuring of the Argentinian debt. That is not an easy thing to do, but we organized a system. And by the time 
the IMF withdrew the support from Argentina at the end of November 2001, and I think that was a terrible mistake made by the managing director of the IMF, Mr. Köhler. At that very moment, we had already restructured 50% of our debt. In the middle of that process, the IMF withdrew the support from Argentina. And of course, the opposition politician organized the riot to force the resignation of the government. No. Now, let's just consult now some people with great expertise in this area. We've got Paul Bluestein, who is the author of a book on the Argentinian situation, the bankrupting of Argentina, and is writing a book on Greece. And we've got you in Yokohama, which is marvellous to get a studio from yeah. there, so, so welcome. And we've got Dr Jill Hedges, who rather more traditionally is coming from Oxford. Hello, Doctor. Hello. Now then, I think what we should do here is you both have very great uh, expertise on this. So do you want to put some questions to Dr Cavallo and to John Thornton about the broad brush policy decisions that had to be taken? In the second half of the programme, we're going to talk about what lessons Greece can learn. But just from this Argentinian situation, we've heard the IMF view, we've heard the government view. Paul Bluestein, why don't you start? What questions would you put to our guests here? Well, if I can back up a little bit, one of the most wonderful ways I've heard Argentina's fundamental problems summarized, president of the Center for Global Development in Washington, Nancy Birdsall, said that it was the spoiled child of the Washington consensus. You heard Dr. Cavallo talk about how President Menem was invited to Washington. And thanks to, as you said, the fantastic policy that Dr. Cavallo introduced as economy minister in 1991, where he basically, almost like magic, killed off inflation by pegging the peso to the dollar. Argentina is regarded as this poster child of all these you know, free market policies, anti-inflation policies. And they had this very, very disciplined system where their currency was pegged to the dollar. The problem was that, as John Thornton said, if you're going to have a really disciplined currency system like that, you have to be extremely good in every other way. And Argentina wasn't terrible. Dr. Cavallo's right. They weren't awful as far as their budgetary policies, their budget deficits. But you have to be really good. And if I can just explain in very simple terms why that's so. Most countries, when they fall into recession, as Argentina did in 1999, have very standard ways of getting out of it. The most obvious one is to lower interest rates. They have a central bank that can lower interest rates. Argentina couldn't do that because they had promised to keep their currency tied to the dollar. Another thing a country can do is they can depreciate their currency. And Argentina couldn't do that either. And the other thing countries can do is they can stimulate their economy by increasing their government spending or lowering taxes. Argentina couldn't do that because the markets were very skeptical that they would be able to service their debt. So they were caught in this trap. And they had gotten into it because they were this poster child. Wall Street loved them, poured money into it. This is why my book is called And the Money Kept Rolling In and Out, because money was pouring into the economy and the IMF loved what Argentina was doing and kind of let them off the hook. President Clinton treated them as this perfect poster child for everything else. So they got themselves into this trap for that reason and couldn't get out of it once the economy turned into recession. And everyone began to realize that their GDP was going down and they had no way to stop that and their debt was going up and they had no way to stop that. It wasn't a question, but it was a very clear explanation, and thank you for it. And, and, and Dr Jill Hedges, I'm going to ask you to ask a question now of either uh, John Thornton or Dr Cavallo about this situation these two men back in 2001 found themselves in representing the IMF and the government of Argentina. Before I get to a question, I'd just like to go back to something that Dr Cavallo said earlier, because 
I think one of the key problems here was that the economy wasn't really dollarized. It was only partially dollarized. And for instance, privatized utilities, tariffs were fixed in dollars. A lot of bank lending was in dollars. Rental contracts were in dollars. But people were actually being paid in pesos and companies' income was in pesos. So this essentially locked in convertibility for a long time, even though as the economy went into recession, being pegged to a very strong currency like the dollar made it increasingly uncompetitive. In hindsight, given the fact that obviously it was politically very difficult to devalue without essentially throwing into crisis the amount of debt, personal and corporate debt that was in dollars and being paid in pesos, in hindsight, would it have been more sensible to get out of convertibility sooner than in December 2001 when it crashed along with, with the economy more generally? Now, let me tell Jill and also Paul, the description you make of Argentina is the description of a country that has a local currency, which plays the important role in everything. And you pay that currency to the foreign currency and all the debt is in the foreign currency. Look, in Argentina, debts and assets of the people and practically all the transactions were conducted in dollars. We were a fully dollarized economy for every purpose. The only reason why we kept the peso pegged to the dollar and backed in dollar was because someday we thought the peso could float vis-a-vis the dollar, but to appreciate rather than depreciate, as it happened with most of the currencies that in the past were pegged to a patron currency and then because of increased productivity. So from that point of view, devaluing was not possible. It's not just to assume that you could have a different monetary system. You had that system, and of course, you had to find the solution within that system. Otherwise, it would be a disaster. Argentina went into a disaster, but not during 2001. The disaster came in 2002 with the new government, because the decision of the new government was not only to default on the debt owed to the foreigners, but to default on all debts, including the debts of the banks to the depositors in the banking system. Thank you, sir. I'm going to now just ask our other guests, in terms of people's perceptions of these problems, we're seeing the situation in Greece and, of course, we're talking about Argentina. And for most people, the issues are these broad brush issues of indebtedness, fiscal responsibility, and whether default is inevitable or whether we're just pushing problems down the road. And also there's the political issue of who is to blame for all of this. So Paul Blustein, first of all, can you talk us through, in the Argentinian case in 2001, 2002, who do you think was responsible? Whose fault was it? Well, the blame can be spread, I think, quite far and wide. You know, no one was holding a gun to the head of the Argentine government to borrow all that money, and no one was holding a gun to the head of the Argentine people to vote for politicians who overpromised about spending and underpromised about taxes. But blame, I think, goes to the IMF for having stuck with them for too long and having tried to lend them more money at a time when they couldn't afford to pay off the private debts that they had already incurred. And a lot of blame goes to Wall Street for having been way over-enthusiastic in the first place about the country and treating it like a spoiled child and then suddenly deciding that nothing that they do is okay. So the blame can be spread far and wide. Can I just take that point you've made and put it to John Thornton? John Thornton, you were there with the IMF. You just heard that the IMF maybe could have cut it earlier, should have acted earlier. What do you say? Ultimately, the policy is the responsibility of the government. And it's up to the IMF and its shareholders to decide whether they want to support that policy or not. 
Now, the IMF, I think, took its eye off the ball under the early years of the currency board. With hindsight, there were clear signs of some fiscal deterioration in the sense that debt was increasing. Instead of running surpluses, the government was running modest balance or small deficits. You should be taking advantage of the good times if you've only got one weapon. In the good times, in the early 90s, they should have taken advantage of the possibilities for having a better fiscal position because they are an economy that is subject to a lot of external shocks. Those shocks arrived, the country was in a poor position to deal with them. In the IMF's case, yes, I think it's true the eye was taken off the fiscal ball for a little while. I think it's true that, as Dr Cavallo said, debt should have been restructured early. I mean, some kind of debt write-down. Now, that certainly should have been done earlier. Now, there was a complication to all this in that the general ideology around official support operations for countries was changing. Prior to the late 90s, it was essentially the case that official creditors would bail out private creditors. A country would get into trouble, the IMF and other institutions would put their money in and that would allow private creditors to take their money out. Now, that doctrine started changing around the end of the 90s. And it was felt that there should be greater private sector involvement. So the official creditors would put some money in, provided private creditors accepted a debt write-down of some kind. Now, that's very nice in theory. It's extremely hard to do in practice because private creditors won't accept a reduction in their debt unless there's a credible threat of default. And a country that looks like it's making a credible threat of default gets into all sorts of trouble for other reasons. People who've got their money in banks that are holding government securities take their money out. Other people that are thinking about lending to the government or even about lending to the private sector start to not do so. So I think this concept was sort of introduced without... I'm not sure if it was fully thought through. OK, so we, we've heard three different accounts of blame. I'm just going to quickly go to you, Dr Hedges, and just say, you know, Wall Street, IMF, government fiscal irresponsibility or not enough sort of caution. What's your view? I agree that there's plenty of responsibility to be spread around. I think it might be worth saying in this case that whereas frequently in cases of economic crisis there's a tendency to blame IMF-imposed policies. I think it's worth saying that at least for most of the duration of convertibility and up until the last months before the default, Argentine economic policy wasn't actually imposed by the IMF. Some of it, I think, was accepted by the IMF somewhat reluctantly. So I haven't heard very much here in terms of any responsibility on the side of the Argentine authorities or the two governments in which Dr. Cavallo served. They were responsible for the monetary policy or lack thereof. They were responsible for loose fiscal policy. They were responsible for what I think was perhaps a not very well thought out privatization process, which by definition had to give very favorable conditions to investors because the privatized companies had been underinvested for many years. But it was a lost opportunity in many respects from the point of view of domestic policymaking. 
You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is Owen Bennett-Jones with News Hour Extra, and we're trying to work out what happened in Argentina back in 2001 and what relevance it has for Greece. And uh, so we're talking about the Greek bit of it now and what lessons can be drawn. Now, the discussion that we had in the first half of the programme indicated to me that it's not terribly clear who exactly was responsible for what, and even as you look back on it, you know, it's not easy to work out exactly what went on and what went wrong. I mean, there are different versions and different views, and so it is, of course, today in Greece. So let's just first of all understand the parallels. There will be differences in parallels. And Paul Bluestein, I'm going to ask you first because you're writing a book on the situation in Greece. So what are the parallels between Greece today and Argentina in 2001? I think there's an extremely important one, which is that both these countries got official bailouts led by, the, in Argentina's case, mostly from the IMF and Greece's case from the IMF together with what's called the Troika, the other European governments lending money. And, you know, these things, when they happen, you know, the, the bailer outers make themselves out to be very magnanimous. We're here to help you. And, of course, there's a lot of good that can be done in some situations when they come in to rescue a country. But when they come in to rescue a country that can't afford to pay, can't afford to service the debt that it's incurred to private creditors, and I think that was, in retrospect, clearly true in Argentina's case. In retrospect, it was clearly true in Greece's case. When they come in to bail out, well, it's two big problems. One is uh, what economists call moral hazard, which is, uh, everyone's heard this term. It, it's basically, if you bail out people, they'll think they can get away with doing it. They think there's no risk to be taken in, in lending money to risky countries, and they just go do it again. But you're really not doing a favor for the country. You're giving all this official credit to them, which can't be restructured, which can't be written down, which can't be reduced nearly as easily as private debt can. It's very hard, as John Thornton was saying earlier in the program, to restructure private debt. But clearly, there are ways of doing it. And in Greece's case, actually, it was done, a, the biggest write-down in all of history in 2012. But it came two years after the crisis had become terribly intense and Greece was already in recession. So all this money had been lent from these official creditors, from the IMF and from European governments to Greece, just as IMF money was lent to Argentina. And that's money that countries have to pay back. The IMF uh, has what's called preferred creditor status. Countries have to pay the IMF back or they become international prizes. So, so your, point, very... your point is in both places that creates a problem for the country? Yes, you're not doing them any favor because you're saddling them with all this debt that they have to pay right. back. That's the parallel. What's, what's the, what are the differences? Why should we not see Argentina as, as uh, having lessons for Greece? Well, Argentina was able to recover after defaulting and breaking its currency board system. And a lot of people are saying that could possibly happen with Greece if they would just default and get out of the euro and go back to using drachmas. The value of their currency would fall. Their products would become more competitive. Lots more tourism, people are saying. Right, yeah. tourism. Yeah, yeah, there's all kinds of benefits that they would have. And they would finally get out of this, all this austerity that's being imposed on them. You know, I think there's some merit to that, but Argentina actually has exports. I mean, it's a it's a fantastically productive agricultural exporter, soybeans, wheat in particular. And they were they were quite fortunate after the default and the breaking of the currency board because in the mid-2000s, the markets for those products shot up and prices shot up. That really helped their economy recover. Greece so, <laughs> is not a big wheat exporter. It doesn't have that. So you're saying that the difference is that it would be more difficult for Greece to take advantage of getting out. 
I think it would. I mean, tourism could benefit in Greece, uh, and that's a big part of their economy. But Argentina went through hell in 2002, absolute economic hell. As Dr. Cavallo was saying, you know, the, all the contracts were broken. The economy really became quite dysfunctional. And Greece would surely go through just an, a horribly wretched period. And then the question is, would they, you know, how many years would go before they actually would see the light at the end of the tunnel? So, so that helps us. There are, some, there are some differences and there are some parallels. And Dr. Cavallo, I'm going to ask you now to explain your view. Given your experience in Argentina, you lived through this, and you're now saying to the Greeks, my view is stay in the Eurozone. That's what your, 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 your advice to them is. Of course, for Argentina, exiting the currency board and uh, breaking all the contracts and defaulting not only on foreign debt, but on domestic debts and all domestic contracts, like it happened at the beginning of 2002, it was a, really a tragedy for Argentina. And the people that say that thanks to that Argentina recovered, they do not understand what actually happened. Argentina recovered because of the huge improvement in terms of trade that came since the mid of 2002 on. Imagine the price of soy went up from $120 per ton to $600 per ton. The problem is the Argentinian economy since 2002 until now, it has been a disaster. Not because it grew during some years, but because it reintroduced inflation into the economy. That is terrible. That, we, we, this is very important for Greece. If Greece exits the euro, and uh, first of all, the fiscal adjustment and the adjustment in general will be much bigger than the one that they have already done, and the recession will stay there for longer, and then they will reintroduce inflation into the Greek economy. No, so right. uh, that is a, uh, that, and a very that important. Is, so, so let's yeah. so, so we've heard that Argentina was very you know, lucky in some way with world prices, and it was well placed to take advantage of defaulting in in some way, so that it managed to grow very fast. That might not apply to Greece, and therefore Greece should stay in the euro. But can I just ask the other three panelists here? Any of you can jump in. I mean, we hear the view often that Greece can't stay in the euro because it's just not sustainable. So can any of you jump in and tell us, you know, does this add up as a, no. as, as a uh, recommendation? John Thornton. OK, I think there's one huge difference between Greece and Argentina, despite the many similarities in that there's not an independent monetary policy, there's not an independent exchange rate. And at the moment, there isn't even a fiscal policy because you don't have access to financial markets. But there's one huge difference which could work in Greece's favour, and that is that 80% of the debt is now in the hands of the official sector. So organising a debt reduction, in theory, would be far easier than was the situation faced by Dr Cavallo. So just to explain that, this is debt held by governments and therefore it's more political. And you could yeah. get a political decision just to sort of cut some of this debt, whereas Argentina, you couldn't do that. You couldn't do that. And so no matter what happens in the discussions between Greece and its official creditors today in the EU... If they don't end that discussion by saying, well, Greece has agreed these fiscal measures and in return we've given it a major write-down on the debt, we've got nowhere. We've but, bought but, another but you're saying that is possible. So that, so that would be a way of Greece staying in. That would be a way of Greece if, staying if, in. It, but it, 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 what, what that involves is Greece offering enough austerity yeah. to persuade the European leaders to go back to their own electorates and say, look, we've just got to let them I, off some of this I, debt. I, I don't like the terminology. I don't, I don't think it's enough austerity because if you're getting massive debt relief. We're in a situation where debt to GDP is probably around 175% of GDP. 
Greek debt compared Greek to debt. its production a year. Yeah, 175 percent. That's and when Argentina defaulted, it was probably just over 50. It is enormous. Numbers. So it's a huge difference. Yeah. But 80 percent of that is held by the EU, the IMF, and some other official bodies. So let me let me go to our other panelists and just get some comment on this broad brush lessons of Argentina for Greece. Uh, and perhaps you could try and make one point each about that. First of all, Dr. Hedges. Well, I think it's perhaps dangerous to think too much in terms of lessons from Argentina precisely because of what other people have said. Number one, Greece is not a trading nation in the same way. And number two, I think a lot of the productivity and competitiveness improvement in Argentina in the 1990s didn't come so much from the privatized sector as from other manufacturing sectors like automotive and also agriculture. They received a lot of productive investment and it was fairly easy to bring that back on stream rapidly after the crisis. You don't have that in Greece. Greece does not have a very strong or very competitive manufacturing sector. Yeah, you're all agreed on that. It's going to be tougher for Greece. And Paul Bluestein, have you got a comment on this lessons lessons to draw? Yeah, I, I completely agree with everything John Thornton just said. With, but there's one important caveat, which is it's not that easy to restructure the debt that European countries and the European Central Bank have lent to Greece. They're adamantly opposed to taking write-downs, and they have good reasons for this. They have bad reasons for being so stubborn about it because, you know, it could really help Greece recover if, right. if a good enough deal. But think back to 2010 when Germany lent all that money and all these other European countries lent that money to Greece. They told their voters, oh, this is a loan. There's no bailouts allowed in the European Union. We're not allowed to assume the debts of other countries. That's an ironclad rule when we set this whole thing up. And so if they write the debt down... Then the political opposition will say, aha, you see, you promised us that these weren't gifts. They were loans. And now you're forgiving it. You see, it was a gift. Okay, Paul, I'm not sure that I'd be too worried about the moral hazard in that I'm not sure that too many other governments in the EU want to go through what Greece has just gone through. (laughs) That might be a salutary lesson. The other thing is, you know, the EU is simply not being intellectually honest. Uh, The current indebtedness of Greece is such that it simply cannot be paid back. And they'll get nowhere unless there is debt reduction. I agree. So the the EU has to bite the bullet. Otherwise, this situation is going to go on. Well, it won't go on for too much longer because bank depositors will just take Greece out of the euro, essentially. Yeah, no, I I agree. There's a very good reason for them to write the debt down, and they shouldn't have lent the money in the first place to bail out all the private bondholders. So I'm I'm not saying that they shouldn't do it, but I'm saying that it's extremely difficult... For official creditors, yeah. once they've come in and bailed a country out, to then turn around and say, okay, well, you know what, we'll forget. And of course, it's and the IMF has absolute ironclad rules against doing that, sure. too. You're yeah. listening to News Hour Extra with Owen Bennett-Jones and a panel of experts from Argentina and Greece. And we're trying to work out what lessons there are for Greece in what happened in Argentina. And one of the points about Argentina is that even after 2001, and we've heard there was a spurt of growth after that default and there was you know reasons for optimism in terms of recovery but there was a second default just in 2014 and it is often said but one of the explanations that sometimes put forward is that so-called vulture funds played a role in that so I'd like someone to explain the vulture funds for us and what uh, why they're important and what they do Paul Bluestein first perhaps you could start and just tell us what they are what they do what role they play what they do is they come in when a country is really sort of going under the under the water for the third time, and the bonds of the country are trading for maybe 30 cents, 40 cents, 50 cents on the dollar. 
and they buy those bonds. And then after the country has gone into default or has tried to restructure its debt, worked out a deal with other bondholders, they say, wait a minute. You have to pay us back 100 cents on the dollar plus interest because look at what this bond says here, right in this in this fine print here. It says you have to pay or else we can take you to court and we can force you to pay. And they file suits. Now, a country can always say, to heck with you. We're a sovereign nation. You can't collect from us. But Vulture Funds bought Argentine bonds in the late 90s as the country was going under, and they did the same with Greece as the country was going under. And those Vulture Funds have brought suit against Argentina for years, and they've caused all kinds of grief for the country. Even though they've never been able to actually collect, they have gotten an incredible ruling from a federal judge in New York that basically said, if you're going to pay all the other bondholders, you have to pay these guys 100 cents on the dollar as they claim they have a legal right to do, or else you're in default. Okay. So, um, so, so they're important. And, and that's they, why this def- other default happened. Yeah. Uh, the 2014 default. And some people say right. that the Vulture Fund sort of forced that because of that ruling in New York. Now, Diego Ferro, you run, you run a hedge fund, and I don't suppose you call it a Vulture Fund, do you? I would call it, in general, distress funds. Distress fund. That sounds it's a much lot more of that. respectable. Uh, can, can I just introduce you properly? You're the co-chief investment officer of Greylock Capital. It's based in New York, and you deal, let's call it that then, with distressed sovereign debt. And you, you buy debt cheaply and then try and redeem it at a higher price, right? Yes, and all that tends to be a completely voluntary process because we buy it from people who are willing to sell it. And what do we do to collect that? It's also perfectly legal. In general, as a firm, we tend not to sue, unlike others, but we believe in voluntary negotiations with creditors that usually results in a higher payout than some of the levels that we buy. But, I mean, look, if you've got a company who is buying this debt cheaply and then is saying, I need 100% and I'll block everything, the whole international negotiation, all the governments, the IMF, everyone, I'll block everything unless I get my 100%. I mean, it's legal. No question it's legal. It's extremely unhelpful, isn't it? Yes, but for example, why did nothing happen in Greece? Because Greece issued most of its debts in local law. And then after the restructuring, it forced a haircut and went to its Congress and threw laws that force what is called a cramdown, and it force acceptance. So that's very helpful. I think you've just given us the first lesson that was drawn from Argentina, which is that they, 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 the Greeks framed it differently legally, and they for, therefore didn't have to pay you guys so much money. Yeah, but that's a very big distinction. At a level, if you're going to go to New York, you respect New York law. And New York law yeah, sure, is pretty clear sure. in that case. And, and everyone is talking about this supposedly, quote-unquote, crazy judge. But whatever he said was confirmed by an appeals court, and Argentina continued complaining to the Supreme Court. Everyone, all the way to the Supreme Court, confirmed what the crazy judge said. Diego Ferry, thank you very much for that explanation. And let me just ask people to comment on what we've just heard there, because I think in the case of Greece, most of the equivalent funds, these sort of vulture fund uh, distress debts, have already been paid off. And so it is less of an issue in the Greek case than it was in the Argentinian case. To make a comment, I completely agree that the vulture funds or the distressed funds did what uh, it was expected that they would do. So the problem is that the debt restructuring that finally Argentina conducted in 2005 
in 2010 was completely wrong because it was unilateral and it was accompanied by a law that declared that those that did not submit their credits would never be paid. And that is something that which is crazy on the authorities that decide that. So I completely agree with that. Now, the problem of Greece is that they should have restructure and get a significant haircut in 2010. Instead of that, Europe and the IMF, they provided bailout by 230 billion euros. And now it is completely unrealistic on the side of Europe to think that they will be paid fully that amount of money. It, that is impossible. So if they push Greece out of the euro and uh, to complete default on every kind of debt, they will recover nothing or only a, a small proportion of those credits. So it would be very smart on the side of the European governments to provide a significant relief for Greece as a compensation for the continuous efforts that Greece, I agree, should commit to reorganize its economy and to implement not only fiscal adjustment but pro-growth policies. No, So in a sense, the attitude that Europe is taking vis-a-vis -vis Greece in relation to $240 billion of saying there is no way we can provide any debt relief and we want back 100% of our loans is more or less the same as the results that the vulture funds got through the court system of the United States vis-a-vis -vis Argentina, no? Yes, I, so, see, I see your point. There's, there's quite a parallel there, yes. And, and Paul Blustein, I know that you're quite critical of the... Uh, vulture funds or the distressed sovereign debt funds. So have you got any comment to Diego Ferro from what you heard there? Well, yeah, I mean, I completely agree that it's all totally legal. That's, I guess that's the problem <laughs> is, yes, Judge Grisey's decision, the Supreme Court declined to review it, so the decision stands. And vulture funds are in a much stronger position because of that. In Greece, although, you know, Greece did negotiate with most of its creditors and was able to get a deal with 96% of them, that they would take a big write-down on their debt, but about 3% of them who had bonds that weren't covered by Greek law in which it wasn't so easy for Greece to force that kind of reduction on the creditors, those guys, they made enormous profits. One of them is a man named Kenneth Dart. He lives in the Cayman Islands. He's last estimate I saw of his wealth, he's $13 billion. He had bought Greek bonds for, I think, between 60 and 70 cents on the dollar. No one knows for sure. That's the estimate. And he got paid 100 cents plus interest because he was able to enforce his contracts because his bonds were enforceable in court. So, uh, uh, Diego Ferro, your point is it's legal. Not only that, you know, he didn't sue anyone. The thing is that countries don't want to go through the problem of getting into I legal trouble. So. And I think that's perfectly logical. Issue that under local law. But if you go and submit, and in many cases, under the conditions that you issue, you renounce your sovereign immunity, then it's not entirely logical for you then to claim, oh, sorry, I made a mistake. Now I want to change the terms. That's why, honestly... People want to go to places like New York or the UK because there is a respect of the rule of law. Can I come back on that? Go on. 
Yeah, I mean, I, of course, r- rule of law, respect for contracts, all those things are terribly important. And it's it would be awful if countries could just, you know, willy-nilly just say, well, you know what, I've decided I don't want to pay this debt because it's inconvenient. But when countries get completely over their head in debt, just as companies, when companies get over their head in debt, when people get over their head in debt, we have laws to allow them to go for court protection, to give them relief from the pressure from creditors to pay 100 cents on the dollar, and they can negotiate a deal. And But there's no comparable system for countries. And when you have situations where the Greeks had to pay those vulture funds, 100 cents on the dollar, then in the future, bondholders look at these situations and they say, well, why should I be a sucker? Why should I accept the negotiated deal when that rich guy in the Cayman Islands made a, a fortune. So that, that, th- that's that, that the sets us up perfectly for the topic I just wanted to finally get on to here, which is there have been proposals to do exactly what you described there, to have some sort of bankruptcy arrangements which do exist for companies and do exist for people so that they can restart their lives or restart their business. And it basically involves some kind of debt forgiveness, doesn't it? And then they restart. But for countries, there isn't. And you're, I think, saying there, Paul Bluestein, that there should be. Uh, let me ask you all about this. John Thornton, I mean, this has been discussed. The IMF have talked about it. How realistic is it? You know, the, the IMF actually spent a considerable amount of time devising a scheme, trying to get approval for a scheme, and failing to get agreement for a scheme. From who objected? Uh, well, actually, many of the fund's membership, but particularly large sovereigns objected. But the big countries, yeah, the big powers. Yeah. Because they thought all these developing world countries will run up massive debt and I'll end up having to write it off. And a lot of private creditors also objected. The vulture funds? No, no, just private creditors in general, banking community, financial community. So I think it is a very good idea, I think, getting agreement. uh, You can see why no one would want to agree to it, because it would just lead to a situation where countries could much more easily go bust and just write it all off. Well, again, you know... Going bust is a big deal, has ramifications. Usually when you go bust, you lose your job. Yeah, but it has ramifications for the people, as we heard. But it has ramifications for the leaders. No, they can walk off with the money. Oh, well, you're assuming that they steal the money. (laughs) But, you know, most defaults, the president or the prime minister loses his job. Loses his job, but maybe a happy retirement. Let me ask Jill Hedges, can you give us your view on that issue of trying to have a more orderly way of managing these situations? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the Argentine case has been a salutary lesson for other lenders. And since the Argentine case, most sovereign debt issues have included collective action clauses, which would prevent a small minority of holdout bondholders from holding up a restructuring. But of course, that doesn't apply retroactively. So it doesn't help in cases like Argentina where that didn't exist. And Dr. Cavallo, when you look at what happened in 2014 in Argentina, particularly that second default, how do you see this issue of some kind of, is it chapter 11, they say, in uh, relation to American business? Of course, that would be very good to have a sovereign debt restructuring mechanism like the one that Ann Kruger was precisely working on during 2001. This is the one that Uh, the IMF thought about, yeah. Yes, that, that would be very good. But, you know, collective action clauses which has been perfected recently by a proposition of the International Institute of Capital Markets to make it more effective, I think provides some solution. Now, during 2001, when we were organizing the process of orderly debt restructuring, negotiating with the creditors, and we had already implemented 50% of it, we had an alternative solution, which was to use the so-called exit consent clauses. 
you can impose modification in non-monetary condition of the existing bonds if you get 66% of the votes for each series of, of bonds. And, you know, we had already captured many bonds, particularly the most expensive bonds, the so-called mega swap of early 2001. We had already more than 66% of the voting power in the hands of the government. So it would have been very easy to impose these exit consent clauses, which would have discouraged holdouts, and we could have gotten a significant participation, maybe as high as that that Greece got, thanks to the fact that they had their debt under Greek law. The problem is that in the middle of that process, because the IMF decided not to disburse the amount of money that it had committed to disburse in November 2001, and declared that the program for Argentina was suspended, at that very moment, we could not continue with the final orderly debt restructuring. And that is why I consider that there was a responsibility of the IMF. OK, let me, bring, of, in, let me bring in Diego Ferro. I think you're, you, you don't agree with what you've just heard. In general, the issue, I think, is one of those things that sounds great in theory, but it's impossible in practice to implement because sovereigns will always have the right to get into that system if they want to and opt out if they don't. And if not... You have a system in the World Bank called ICSID that was supposed to be some sort of world tribunal to judge on foreign investments gone wrong in a country. And that system failed because countries like Argentina and Venezuela systematically ignore whatever ruling happened. So I think that what Dr. Cavallo said in terms of collective action clauses and active involvement of creditors, securing participation in restructurings of north of 90% at inception is a very solid way because we've been involved in restructurings of Ivory Coast, Grenada, Belize recently, and there has been absolutely no issue of holdouts. But what you need is engage creditors and have collection action clause to be able to enforce it in case some minority holdout should happen. Thank you all very much indeed. And as I just look back on the last hour and what we've heard, it seems to me there are lots of similarities between these cases, but the differences are striking and make it difficult to draw firm conclusions about the lessons learned. So it is difficult to be prescriptive about clear lessons learned. But uh, we've certainly had a very interesting discussion. And thanks very much to John Thornton for your contribution, to Domingo Cavallo, two times economic minister in Argentina, to Paul Bluestein for your very clear explanations, and to Dr Jill Hedges in Oxford with Oxford Analytica now. And that is the end of this edition of News Hour Extra, so thanks very much for listening. And from Owen Bennett-Jones here in London, goodbye.